Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Stanley Dubinsky and Chris Holcomb of the University of South Carolina about their book, Understanding Language Through Humor. It's an introductory textbook in which the subdisciplines of linguistics are introduced and explained through illustrative examples from cartoons, sitcoms, and stand-up routines. In this interview, we talk about the aims of the book and the target audience, and discuss how instances both of miscommunication and of virtuosity in dialogue can help us understand the building blocks of language. I'm delighted to welcome Stanley Dubinsky and Chris Holcomb to talk about their new book, Understanding Language Through Humour, which is an elementary guide to linguistics framed around relevant examples of humour. Stan, Chris, I read the blurb and immediately thought, this is a great idea. Uh, How did it come about? Well, I think the way it initially came about, well, it's it's the two-step process how it came about. For years and years and years, um, I've been teaching undergraduates linguistics, and slowly started to collect cartoons. Uh, the cartoons were helpful. You know, if you go into your, if you go into the daily newspaper, you know, and, 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 and look at the cartoon strips, they're very often, more often than not, there, there are cartoon strips where the humor relies on, on, on language, on ambiguities of language, subtleties of language. And I started to cut these things out. I would bring them to my classes and I'd make photocopies and hand them to the class and everyone would laugh and, uh, it was it was a great time, um, and I started to get a larger and larger collection, and then I started to categorize them, and I have I had different folders with you know different groups of cartoons and comics in that were relevant to different chapters of the text, until finally you know it, it evolved into just having hundreds and hundreds of you know sort of a real repertoire. And then, you know, the more I collected, the more I got very obsessive about collecting. So I wound up, you know, I would go through the paper religiously every day uh, in the hopes that I'd find a cartoon that might be relevant to um, some aspect of the course. And after years and years, I mean, when I say years and years, I mean like 25 years, uh, at least 20, 25 years of collecting these things. I had this file cabinet filled with cartoons and and um, when uh Helen Barton, who's a rep from Cambridge, came along. She was looking for manuscripts, and I told her at the time, I said, well, I don't have a manuscript, but I've got an idea. And the idea was, well, what about a a book that explains stuff through humor? The reason being that, you know, whenever I would have a complicated concept, you know, if you if you present the ambiguity through a joke and people laugh at the joke, then you can simply say to them, well, look, you got the humor, so now I just need to explain to you what aspect of language was involved in your getting that humor? And, and so then, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and yeah. Well, meanwhile, um, you know, Stan told me about this corpus, and I was, I, my background's not in linguistics, it's in rhetoric, but I uh, had done research in humor, so I was very interested, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, what a great resource. And I, um, I remember, it was, on an, it was on an elevator, and right. I said, Stan, I want to see that corpus sometimes. Right. And, um, and Stan said, yeah, sure, sure. But I could already see the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. And it was a couple of days 
I don't know, before or after you talked to Helen, but yeah. you called me on the phone and said, hey, let's write this book. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, we, our, our mutual, our, our collective disciplines, you know, uh, you know, with Chris in, in rhetoric and language and context and pragmatics and me and in, in more formal aspects of linguistics. I mean, there was a natural kind of divide. I mean, our, our writing of this book in, 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 in every possible way, um, actually met in, uh, in chapter six. Uh-huh. I mean, there were, there were chapters that, you know, that, that Chris designed and, and I had input to their chapters that I designed and Chris had input to. And then in chapter six, we kind of like that was our that was our meeting ground. And we sort of did that one together. Um, but uh, but that's how it that's how it got started. There were a lot of sort of bumps along the road once we decided upon a book. And the bumps consisted of, you know, what kind of a book is this going to be? I mean, Cambridge is a publisher mostly of language textbooks. And. I didn't feel that a book like this was really designed to be a textbook because I wouldn't use a book that was only based on jokes um, for a text. But I thought it was a it was the kind of book that that would open up linguistics and the understanding and analysis of the language to anyone who was interested, not just someone sitting in a class. And um, the bumps for me was my lack of formal training in linguistics. I've always had an interest in linguistics. Um, the interest in humor has led me to linguistics because uh, people in rhetoric, at least at the time that I was beginning my research in humor, weren't really talking about humor. And uh, to find out you know, who was saying things and saying interesting things, I had to go to linguistics. Uh, but having said that, having a, this sort of general familiarity with linguistics, um, I would often, you know, when I write a chapter or draft a chapter, I'd bring it into Stan. I say, okay, here's here's how my idea for presenting a particular chapter, and is this would this look right to a linguist uh, to a linguist? And he would say, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he would help shape the chapter from 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 a more linguistics perspective. It's very interesting that you you come to it from these kind of uh, different points of view. Uh, a question I wanted to ask was was whether you felt you were drawn to a particular style of, you know, especially verbal humor. Um, do, the, do the choices of example in here kind of reflect your taste in humor? I think so. Um, Stan had uh, most of the visual um, instances of humor, the cartoon, mm-hmm. um, and I brought in a lot of um, the more verbal mm-hmm. humor, um, you know, the stuff from the stand-up, um, I mean, from stand-up uh, routines and from sitcoms, and so... In a sense, it is there is a kind of autobiographical dimension there that you could kind of read art or, or dispositions and tastes and um, and humor in the book. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I had my repertoire of, of, of and, and file cabinet of cartoons, but there was a whole there's a whole lot of stuff that the book covers, which you know really doesn't fit into the realm of cartoons when you're talking when you're trying to find humor that will illustrate or illuminate um, conversation and, and, and cross-cultural conversational gaps. I mean, you're not going to find that so readily in a three-panel strip. And, um, and, and Chris had a whole repertoire of his own of, of links and, and different websites and different, um, and different books of humor and, 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 and videos of humor that he was familiar with, which you know, sort of brought a whole different dimension to this book. 
I suppose another question I'd like to ask that's very general is is whether analysis uh, kind of kills humor or whether you can appreciate it more if you can see what's going on under the hood. Well, that's the, I mean, that's kind of a, a recurrent topos in, in, in humor research that oftentimes a book or uh, a scholarly book or article will begin by saying, you know, there's this old saw that to analyze a joke is to kill a joke. One famous instance continues on with this and saying, I plan to analyze all jokes and so um, prepare for the descending gloom. Um, but to me, analyzing jokes is also a way of more fully appreciating jokes, um, uh, appreciating the complexities of jokes and the complex works, the complex work that jokes and humor can do. Turning then to the the book itself, you start with this uh, with a very general synopsis of communication, human communication, particularly, and also animal communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, you, you drill down over the over the following five or six chapters into the uh, the details of linguistic theory. Um, mm-hmm. Did the way you're approaching the subject kind of suggest um, that organizational structure, or is that more the way you would care to present linguistics per se? Well. Yeah, this is, I mean, the way we did this book, um, in terms of organization, what I wanted to do, and what, what we, you know, what we looked at, we looked at the, we looked at introductions to linguistics, with the idea that, that this book would sort of perhaps play a supporting role to a, a main textbook in the linguistics course, or perhaps it would be read independently by a student who is trying to familiarize themselves with linguistics and language structure generally. And the the organization, the structure, was the typical structure that one would get if one were going to open up a standard textbook on linguistics. And in this particular case, since Cambridge gave us the contract, I said, okay, well, let's pull Cambridge's favorite textbook, Introduction to Linguistics, off the shelf, and let's let's shadow their text. So you have an an, an introduction to communication. You have um, sounds of language, then you go to word structure and meaning, then you go to phrase structure and meaning, then you go to uh, pragmatics, then you go to discourse, then you go to child language acquisition, then you go to language variation and dialects, then you go to language and culture, you go to prescriptivism and standardization, and you're done. The one thing that we couldn't um, find um, material enough for chapters was um, uh, formal studies of brain and language, neuro uh, biological approaches, because I just don't... Um, it just the, the the experimental methods are just not known enough out there in the world that people would would write many jokes about them. And the other thing that which, which um which is missing from this book, admittedly, is historical linguistics. Um, again, you know, not the um not the repository of a great deal of uh, language humor. Yeah. So um, something that struck me with the the organization being as it is is that the kind of humor that's um, that's predominant. Uh, changes in quite an interesting way throughout those first um, those first five chapters as you kind of build up from the constituent sounds of language all the way to the discourse level. Yeah. Um, when you start with phonetics and phonemics, um, the kind of obvious examples of humour are puns, but you use these relatively sparingly, and you open up with some, some very interesting um, metalinguistic examples, kind of commentaries on the way in which spelling happens. Um, was that a deliberate choice of emphasis? Well, maybe that's a factor of, um, you know, as we shift in the, the, the chapters in the latter half of the book, it's more about language and context. So rather than necessarily being uh, humor 
overtly or kind of relatively overtly about language, metalinguistic. It's it's more sort of illustrating sort of uh, how language works in, in particular situations. Yeah, there's a, there's another piece of this, and that is that 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 initial um, three or actually four three or four pages that um, that delves into you know sort of the metalinguistic aspect of letters and sounds. In other words, looking at the uh, disconnect between um, representations and the actual substance of language. Part of it is placed in there, I think, because one of the most difficult bridges to cross with with students or novices or people who don't understand linguistics or don't you know understand let's say what sound systems about is to try to get them to understand that that words are not composed of letters but are actually composed of sounds and that letters are merely graphic representations of those sounds in other domains in other countries as a matter of fact where the international phonetic alphabet is regularly taught and people are familiar with symbols or the use of pronouncing words and can and can and can get that um it's probably a lot easier but in in the united states even though you open up a college dictionary and you find um you find phonetic representations for every word in the dictionary i can assure you that nearly no undergraduate student in college can um parse those uh, symbolic representations. They really have a difficult time separating the the substance of a letter from the substance of the sound it represents. And that's, at least in the back of my mind, why that got front-loaded into that chapter. From phonetics and phonemics, you move up to the domain of morphology and then the, and the growing of new words, which um, almost inevitably leads us to, uh, to George W. Bush and his, his many satirists. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, do you miss having a president who, who makes you see language in such a new light? <laughs> well, actually, I'm just thankful that we wrote the book before he was out of office. <laughs> or at least um, we wrote the book while, you know, we were starting the book while he was still in office. and It was still a matter. It was still subject matter. But, yeah, I, I think we I think we miss having, um, you know, a font of comedy, a, a font of comedy. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, the subject of word building is, is one of those where. There seems to be quite a um, quite a domain of material which is used in English only for relatively, let's say, informal purposes, but which serves uh, grammatical functions elsewhere, things like reduplication and so on. Mm-hmm. Is there something about, for example, reduplication which uh, seems to make it uh, particularly strongly associated with humorous usages in English, do you think? Well, I mean, in, in, in particular, I mean, English doesn't have reduplication except in sort of a peripheral space, not the way, let's say, in, in, in the book, you know, you get um, in many languages, reduplication is a formal grammatical or morphological process, um, forming plurals or forming emphatics or what have you. In English, there is no formal morphology of reduplication and wanting to you know, sort of include that as a as 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 a process, as a category, as something that that would be interesting for people to understand, leaves you, um, as we did, uh, talking about how it reveals itself in other languages briefly, like in Japanese, Chinese, and Tagalog, and then you know, pointing to the fact that yes, English has reduplication too. You might not realize it because it's not 
used except in sort of conversational or pragmatic ways. I mean, there's when you say um, you bring the tuna salad and I'll bring the salad salad. I mean, that's that's your duplication in English, but it's it's fairly anomalous, and 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 people might not recognize it for what it is. So and that's why we kind of brought it in as sort of a foreign category and then tried to show how it works in English proper. Right, and then to speak to like, as it, I think Chris was also asking whether it was also somehow disposed or somehow inherently funny. Yeah. And um, I mean, maybe just the the anomalous character of it, the unusualness of it, makes it a kind of a novelty in, in language. But also, it if you know humor, one of the premises that we're that we were kind of working with, although this book isn't about humor, um, we there is a kind of con- idea of humor that informs some of the analysis and this this idea that humor springs from incongruity. So when then you have something like salad salad, there's there's um there's a kind of built in on incongruity which makes it kind of like a joke like structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah that's a that's a very interesting point. I think the um something that again that struck me about the, the nature of the humor which I suppose is uh is also kind of uh, associated with the, the, that kind of incongruity idea is that when you then move up to talk about syntax in the following chapter, the examples, they seem to get somewhat more surreal, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> and uh, you think that, do you think that's something about the, um, the way in which we parse syntax, maybe, the way in which you know, we tend to be committed to a reading and then, have to, and then have to revise it? I wonder whether those examples have a, have a different quality, sort of categorically different quality to the, the examples which rely on the ambiguity of a word or the ambiguity of a sound, for example. Do you have a view on that? Well, I, I, I do think that, you know, when you're dealing with, with, with word ambiguities or perhaps addressing sort of the, the arbitrariness in word structure, because some of the, some of the humor in the, in the previous chapter, you know, relies on, the, on, on trying, to, trying to discover how, while there are regularities in morphology, regularities in structure, regularities in building, so that you can talk about snowmen as being, you know, men shaped things made out of snow, but when you talk about snow tires you're 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 talking about something else entirely. I mean it's those sort of arbitrary it's that arbitrariness which hides behind what seems to be a very regular word building morphology rules which when you get into syntax, you're not dealing with that anymore. You're not dealing so much with the arbitrary, with the arbitrariness of signs. You're dealing more with signs that have the meanings that they have, but then come together in unexpected ways. So, I mean, the, the, the incoherent interpretations of some things, like when you want to say something like, is the fish served here previously frozen or fresh? And someone says, previously fresh, as a, as a way of, um, of insult, perhaps. Um, what you've got there is there's no permutation of the meaning of the words involved. It's an unexpected combinatorics. And that, you know, characterizes more than anything else how, how both semantic and some syntactic humor gets formed. It doesn't it doesn't ride on the unexpected meaning of signs, but it rides on the unexpected combinatorics of signs. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And 
Presumably the effect of humour is often derived from the fact that the ambiguity is something that uh, that gets through without being noticed. Right. So, for example, when when you go and you you know talk to your students about the fact that um, every student likes a teacher is ambiguous between there's one teacher such that every student likes them and um, another meaning where it turns out to be, um, you know, every student likes some teacher or other. Right. Which is a common ambiguity. And it's an ambiguity which is natural. It's an ambiguity which um, which exists in every sentence that has two quantifiers. What's interesting about that ambiguity is that, you know, you show it to students and they say, huh? And they may or may not get it. They may think that the sentence is vague. And then, as I did yesterday, I mean, I put up a cartoon in my uh, mathematical linguistics class. We're talking about quantifiers. And there's a wonderful cartoon by Hickerson in which it says, in the United States, a person falls down the stairs every 3.5 minutes. Bob is that person. And so there you have this sort of difference between specificity and non-specificity, which, which I could talk about for a long time. In Nowhere in that sentence is there any ambiguous sign, right? Nowhere in that sentence is there, is there a word which is, you know, has double meaning, but rather it's the sentence itself which is subject to two meanings, and there's one meaning which is overwhelmingly the meaning intended, and the other meaning is, as one might say, fairly incoherent, and if you drive to that meaning forcefully enough, it becomes incredibly funny. Yeah, I think that seems to, seems to sum it up. So moving up from syntax to the topic of, of pragmatics, this seems like something that's just an incredibly rich field for humor, particularly of a, of a more naturalistic type. I mean, I'm not sure whether I want to admit to finding the phrasier examples naturalistic, but I suppose there are, there are worse fates. Um, is that a difficult kind of area to select examples for? Oh, it's it's it's, it's the richest area in the it's the richest area in the book. You can't you can't um, it's hard to you know you couldn't throw a stone and, and not hit one. Right. I mean, I mean, we begin that chapter with a, almost a, a paradigmatic. Uh, it's the waiter. There's a fly in my soup joke. Basically, it's a it's a variation on that, and um, I mean it just suggests how pervasive pragmatic humor is. I had a um, I had actually had a friend in Texas, and I think he might have made it into this chapter um, indirectly. He would refuse. He was very Texan very much wanted people to be on record, you know, um, and he very, he, he would refuse to read any of my indirect speech acts. Uh, I think one of the examples I use, you know, he would come to me, uh, approach me frequently and say, hey, a bunch of us are going to the movies. Do you, do you want to come? And I would come up with some sort of indirect way of saying no. I would say, well, I have a lot of grading. And, and he would always, re- always respond that, um, I didn't ask you if you had a lot of grading. I asked you if you wanted to come to the movies. So he so it wouldn't, in a way, that's almost like a meta pragmatic joke, right? right? His refusal to read our, our read my indirect speech acts. That's our that's our Mr. Logic uh, was, snippet right. from 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 eighty one, which was a British uh, strip that we cut out and, and used a little bit of, right? Where he says, "Do you sell stamps?" How many? And the clerk says, "How many do you want?" I do not necessarily require any. I just asked whether you sold them. You know, so you get this kind of. Um, you know, contrast between the ridiculousness of, of in, in sort of insufferably direct speech right. and, uh, and, and normal discourse. Right. I, I'm sort of in preparation for this interview. I was going back through the book and I dwelled 
in this chapter, and I was uh, the question that came to mind um, is like, uh, why why is this such a rich vein of humor? What is it about pragmatic humor that uh, makes it seem so pervasive? And um, and I know Stan and I have talked about this before when we were writing the book, and it, it maybe has something to do with it's a way of showing a kind of mastery of the system. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, it's you know if you it's can, what a machine can't do. Right, right. Right. So it's a way of playing with the very medium through which you communicate. Yeah. I mean, I mean, natural sarcasm, which is not necessarily humorous, involves manipulation of the literal meaning of sentences constantly. Um, you ask me, um, am I having a good time and or did I have a good time? And I say, oh, yeah, it was great. And if I say it with that intonation, I've communicated to you the falsity of this very sentence I said to you. And I communicate that through intonation. One of the interesting things about sarcasm is that I think it's a well-honed tool. And people who do it well do it subtly. And one of the um, one of the characteristics of of, of, of sarcastic communication um, among speakers is that people who are really good at it try to put out as few overt cues as they possibly can manage yeah. in order to make the sarcasm more effective. Because if you're too ham-handed about it, you seem like a rube, and you seem like you're unsophisticated. Uh, going going as far the other way as possible as, as, as you possibly can. If you're too sophisticated at it, um, you lose your audience, and then only you know and no one else knows you're being sarcastic. Now, there's some people who actually really enjoy communicating to other people and having a completely un, unwritten text that only they themselves know about. Right, right. And, and um, I mean, rhetoric speaks to this too. I mean, the uh, I mean, Quintilian and Cicero were writing about the pragmatics of humor in um, ancient Rome, and um, uh, indirection, particularly. Um, from the orator who was supposed to show himself, and it was a himself as uh, you know a, a member of the equestrian or senatorial ranks. So show himself as a member of the social elite. One of the ways that he would do so is to sort of do these sort of subtle strokes with humor and not uh, strive too hard or strain too hard for uh, for a joke. And the risk there is that um, if you are too overt then you'd come off looking like a lower-class buffoon or a street entertainer. Mm -hmm. So it's always been that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess there's also the element that's sort of very strong in this chapter, that something everybody does and something everybody is, is very conscious of, that whenever we do things with words, we're also very uh, aware of exactly what it is that we're trying to do. And like your uh, Mr. Logic friend, um, it's nice to know he had a friend, incidentally, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you find everybody's very aware if somebody's being uncooperative, even if they're even if it's very difficult to capture exactly what the rules are that we're supposed to live by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. I mean, it would always, whenever he would pull that, I'd always kind of knock me off balance because he wasn't playing by the rules of you know playing by the rules of the game, and so I was sort of stymied. But you know, speech act theory sort of came to the rescue and allowed me to at least articulate what was happening to me, at the, mm -hmm. you know, when it was happening. What do you think he wanted? I think he just wanted me to go on the record as saying no. I think, I think that's ultimately what he was after. Um, and, um, and I think there's also, he was 
you know, ribbing me too. It was a sort of a playful aggressiveness about it. Right. So he was basically challenging you and challenging your indirection. Right. Uh, and suggesting that maybe you were too indirect and I can, I can make fun of you in yes. this way. Yes. I mean, what happens is I think that it, it, it's, it's a very natural thing. Um, different societies, different cultures, different cultural groups have quite different levels of indirection. So that if you go into one society, you'll find, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's classically talked about how, how in, in Japanese society, people don't say no. It's considered rude to be that direct, to tell someone no. And, um, and when in learning Japanese as a, as a, as a graduate student and going over there, I, I learned very clearly that if someone begins to respond to a yes or no question with a bit of hesitation, like, well, and that's enough for me to understand that they mean no. In other, in other cultures, um, you cannot say no, but to say it. I, when I moved to South Carolina, one of the things that I, that I realized having spent time in Japan and China was that um, South Carolina, in my opinion, was just like Japan, except they spoke English. <laughs> From a discourse perspective, right, right. Has anyone drawn that comparison before? I don't know. I've been drawing it a lot for the last twenty years that I've lived here. So maybe by now people have picked it up. I don't know. <laughs> and even within the United States, I mean, that I think that was a collision between. I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I lived in Texas for a number of years, and you know that's why I sort of identified him as you know a very Texan, where if not in fact at least an ideal, they want to. They, they value people who, you know, say what they mean and mean what they say, whether if that's always plays out in practice is another issue. But that's definitely a, a cultural value there. And it might have been sort of informing his 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 joking with me. Mm-hmm. It certainly seems as though there are a lot of jokes, or a lot of um, sort of traditional uh, setups in, in humor that rely very heavily on this kind of clash between uh, directness and indirectness cultural expectations about those things. Right. And even, um, um, just to reference Texas, Texas again, there was, um, uh, there was an, a, a kind of an avoidance of hyperbole, and a, a kind of more of a, a favoring of understatement. Well, low-perbole. Low-perbole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they tend to like low-perbole. Because I would, you know, if I'd see somebody on the, you know, I had a, out walking my dog or something like that, and, um, I'd say, wow, it's cold. And they'd go, well, it's a bit chilly. Or, right, right. holy moly, it's hot. And they'd go, well, it's a bit warm. Yeah. It, it was too, I was too kind of uh, ranging too far across the, the emotive map for them. And so they wanted to sort of kind of keep the, 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 the cool, the cowboy cool, and express that um, uh, linguistically through understatement. So um, turning then to information chapter 7, um, there you go up again to the level of discourse pragmatics, and, and here you give examples of discourse genres, including those um, that specifically concern jokes. Uh, and again, I guess we have this, this general theme about the way in which speakers manipulate their hearers' expectations is, is so important. Um, well, this this chapter, and at the end of this chapter, it was um, we kind of... In a, in, a, in a somewhat uncharacteristic way that we actually sort of dabble into making some sort of comments about humor. or But I guess we're still using humor as an illustration of, of, of genre. 
I guess one way of, of answering that question is to think about you know the relationship between genre and situation, and to think about genre as a as a response or a typical or strategic response to, to, to particular situations. And um, I guess with some of the humor, the what, uh, the distinction between say the the canned joke, like did you hear the one about, and the witticism um, tells us that um, the, the former is more or less situationally free. It can kind of circulate from situation to situation. There might be some sort of framing mechanism that needs to be done, like did you hear the one about, as a way of um, announcing to other participants in the situation that I'm going to tell you a joke now. But with uh, the witticism, there's a much more organic relationship between that particular genre and the situation it, it, it emerges from, that it, it, it sort of riffs off, riffs off of and uh, tries to play with material that's emergent in that situation. What we found, and we kind of stumbled on this just in the act of talking about it when we were looking at the Wanda Sykes example, is that she was trying to, uh, at least with her stand-up routine, uh, uh, material that she was kind of combining both genres, the, both the canned, did you hear the one about joke, and the more situationally contingent um, witticism, that she was creating these situations, or she was narrating about these situations and her sort of witty responses to them. So in a sense, it's both situationally transportable, that she can move from venue to venue and re recycle this material, but then it kind of comes equipped with its own sort of embedded in its own uh, social situation. It's an interesting point because um, it suggests it suggests that there's some somehow we get credit or it's possible to get credit for um, using wit kind of quotatively within the within the framework of a, something more uh, more structured and more purposeful. Right, or more yeah, sort of uh, crafted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess it's a reflection of what we'll sometimes do, or many of us sometimes do in conversations with one another. We'll replay a situation and, you know, um, tell them how we came back with just the, the right witty retort, or at least wish we had. And, and by, you know, sort of sharing that, oh, I wish I had said that, it's a, it's a way of, I guess, maybe getting a little, a little credit after the fact. Mm -hmm. So the um, those first six, well, those chapters two to seven, uh, those chapters cover language essentially from the smallest to the largest constituents. Mm -hmm. um, and in the remaining chapters, you look at some issues that sort of cross-cut these levels. Uh, as you said, child acquisition, dialects and varieties, um, standardization, and so on. Uh, yeah. In the acquisition section in particular, you have a, have a lot of domestic examples. I, I guess personal experience kind of heightens your awareness of that process, no? Yes, it does. Um, I got to write my kid into this stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things is that uh, we have a, we have an older uh, boy who's uh, 15 going on 16, and the younger uh, is is nine going on 10. So during the period that this was being written, he was at the perfect age. He was four, five, and six. Well, he was seven by 2011 when the book came out, or eight actually by that time. It was quite easy it was it was so easy to you know just pay attention to what was going on mm -hmm. and you know i would find myself you know as we approach this chapter or 
as I knew that I was going to have to get to this chapter soon, this was after we'd gotten through chapters four and five and, and, and the discourse chapter. And, and we were, you know, we were going back and forth. Chris was working on parts. I was working on other parts. And, but when we got to this stage with the, with the um, language acquisition chapter, I had been for some weeks and months um, just writing things down on scraps of paper so I wouldn't forget them when I got around to it. There's a wonderful um, textbook example of perception preceding production um, where children can, are aware of sound differences before they are competent to produce those sound differences. And of course, the standard example which gets cited in all of the linguistic textbooks is the, uh, is the adult researcher um, asking a child about his fish and the child can't say sh, he can only say s. So the child says, oh, yes, my fist. And then the, the adult takes on the child's pronunciation and says, oh, you mean your fist? And the child, of course, gets very frustrated and says, no, I mean, I, not my fist, my fist. Until mm -hmm. the, the adult gives back the right input and says fish. And so the child says, yes, my fist. And of, of course, I didn't want to go with something as old and tired as something that had been appeared before. But I did want to get this out into, into the book. And I happened to stumble upon my uh, my my youngest playing with a friend of his next door, and the friend was was wearing flip flops, and I asked him. I picked up the sh these these flip flop little sandals, and um, and I, I it was all, it was all about something else because I, I said whose are these? And the and Nathan comes back and says, oh, those are my bit bops. And right there, I said, oh, I think I'm going to elicit the exact conversation I need for the book. So I sat down with him and I said, oh, are you wearing sandals, Nathan? And he said, no, they're bip-bops. And so then I did, went through the whole routine with, you know, asking him if they were bip-bops and he said, no, they're bip-bops and so on and so forth. But it was this kind of thing where, where it's, it was so, it was so easy. It was like eating dessert. <laughs> Writing that chapter was like eating dessert, truly. Um, you know, there were some cartoons that were in there, which I had saved from years and years ago. Um, the first cartoon in that, I think, in that chapter. Uh, let me see if it if it is that cartoon or not. Um, yeah, the first cartoon in that chapter eight is one that I, which is from, oh, I don't know, years ago. I don't know, 80s or something like that. 20 years ago, um, which just struck me as being so perfectly, you know, toddler-esque that it had to go in the front of the book. But everything else that followed that, certainly a lot of it, you know, came out from just just watching what was going on around me. Turning in then in the following section to the um, varieties uh, of language, again, we uh, arrive in a place where there's a great deal of potential for humor through, um, through culture clash and misunderstanding. Do you, uh, is this, again, something where you're informed by personal experience? Very much. I mean, I mean, I'm. I grew up in Maryland. You grew up in New, New York, York, right? New York. Yeah. So I transplanted to Texas uh, for grad school, and I remember my um, all right, my first day there, and in Austin, and I went to just a, the drugstore to get some, I don't know, a toothbrush and a pack of gum or something like that, and I went up to pay for it, and um, the cashier said, "Do you want a sack with that?" I said, oh, no, a, a bag would be fine. And, um, <laughs> and you know, where I come from, a sack is this large thing that you put potatoes in. Burlap. Yeah, a burlap sack. But for them, a sack is just a small brown paper bag. So uh, I think we live 
this chapter and continue to live this chapter oh, yeah. Yeah. on a daily basis. Well, if you live it, if you live down here, you live in this chapter. That's truly. right. Yeah. That's right. I remember when we first, when I when I bought our house, we bought our house in 1994. Um, I was told by um, someone who was going in to do a termite inspection that, as as he put it, he said. He said that the seals are going to have to be replaced. And I did not know <laughs> that he was pronouncing the word S-I-L-L-S, as in doors have sills, windows have sills. And I guess I didn't know it at the time, but so do walls also have sills, which are the, it's just the wood that the wall stands on. But having heard him say seals, I actually went under, looked under the house to see what might be leaking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I didn't understand. Well, how could my house? Would, would, I didn't live in a submarine, and I always wonder if my house had sprung a leak. Yeah. But you get all kinds of wonderful misunderstandings. Yeah, and um, I mean, this uh, words that just like uh, are used differently, and say in South Carolina than other parts of the country, like buggy is a shopping cart. Right. And I had a similar encounter when I first moved here. I was going through the store and trying to. Everything that I was trying to purchase, I was trying to carry in my arms. And um, a very nice, helpful young woman came up and asked me if I'd like a buggy. And I didn't. I, I, I replied, "Well, what would I do with that? I, you know, I don't have a baby. <laughs> you know, it's not something. You know." Um, so there's and and it's not just it's not just it operates at multiple levels of language. It's not just Lexus. It's um, it's um, it's pragmatics and grammar as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, different ways of uh, p- politeness strategies. And these, whenever there's a kind of ambiguity, there's a moment that's potential for 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 humor. Mm-hmm. It's even. I mean, it's, it's phonological. My my wife is from Rome, and. Um, and she she still struggles sometimes with the the southern a southern accent, uh-huh. and to her it sounds you know I we were in the park the other day and um, somebody walked by and said something uh, like hello how are you doing and I said did you get that she goes no it just sounded like a trumpet. Turning again from the um, topic of the the cross cultural miscommunications, um, the final chapter of the book deals with um, standardization and prescriptivism. Um, and again, I guess we're at a, going back to a fairly metalinguistic level, but also one that's rich with a, with a certain kind of humor. And uh, one example you give in particular is, uh, is very much about somebody or people using prescriptivism or using standardization just to try and, um, to try and underscore their own status and their own importance. Is, is that something that you think is very widespread? You mean people using um, standard language to try to um, appear higher class than they might otherwise be? Yep. Well, I think that that pretty much um, I think that happens all the time, and what 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 gets you know what what creates humor out of that is 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 the imprecision that it gets used with. So you know you have people who are attempting to evoke a standard and they wind up getting hypercorrecting themselves and and producing forms and speech that no one would ever do such you know mm-hmm. the person that tells you you know whom are you with mm-hmm. and 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 they and and where in 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 the vernacular um they've misanalyzed the who whom distinction as having nothing to do with objects and subjects but rather having to do with 
trying to sound formal. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting in this, uh, to kind of go back to an earlier question that you had asked, um, mm-hmm. uh, the quality of the humor. Like if you think back right. to the pragmatics chapter, it's it's people playing with a system. Kind of there's a more kind of subversive kind of processes going there that they're seeing how far they can game the system to produce humor. But in this instance, the humor is coming. It's more kind of top down. It's more of a corrective, mm-hmm. uh, serving a corrective function. We're laughing or whoever is laughing at people who deviate from the system rather than generating humor by deviating, you know, um, um, within the system, like in so much of the pragmatics humor. Yeah, it's, it's a curious mix, isn't it? Because among the examples you give, there's the, the one of the, um, the boss looking at the um, application, job application of a potential new hire and saying, first off, there's no why in resume. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, on the other hand, you've got the classic example, it's on page 172 of your book, of the uh, knowing better than to use a preposition at the end of a sentence. Right. And these different, on the one hand, you've got some, a joke that's essentially made from the point of, from the point of a prescriptive standard at the expense of somebody who's failing to uphold it, and, and the other in which that's, that's kind of turned on its head. Right, and I, you know, you know, and maybe there's there's a, maybe the part of the difference here is that with when the humor is being used as corrective, it's constructing the object of humor as a as somehow inept. But maybe with the the pragmatic humor, the person who's trying to game the system, there's a there's a certain level of virtuosity there. So it's you know the opposite of being inept. It's 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 being you know a virtuoso of language. Mm-hmm. Our uh, time here is, is quite nearly up, but I mean, I'd like to ask, you mentioned at the beginning that you, you wrote the book with the intention of creating something that was not, not exactly to be used as a course book, but which had, had that, some sense of potential to support course materials or to, uh, to engage uh, somebody with linguistics sort of from the, from the ground up. And I think it's, you know, to me, it succeeds very well in that. What, what sort of reception has the, has the book had? Has, have you found it being used in courses at all? Yeah, it's been, it's been adopted. It's been adopted in uh, quite, you know, I would say uh, not quite as much as some other books, but it has been adopted in some courses as a, a, a what you might call an enrichment text, where, you know, it, it's, it's there alongside the main text. Um, I've assigned it to, if I, what's nice about this book, is for my own personal use of it. When I have students coming to me, undergraduate students typically, who have an interest in language and, and, and perhaps a vague and unarticulated interest in linguistics, and they sound like they want to get involved, but they haven't taken a course, I used to have to tell them, well, next semester, why don't you take the survey of linguistics? Mm-hmm. Um, now I can tell them, look, go home, get this book. It's cheap on Kindle. It's, what, $13 or something like that. Go read it. Read it over the weekend or read it over the next week and then come back and let's talk. I mean, it's one of these books where, you know, somebody could pick it up and read it in a couple of days or read it over the course of a week. Um, my my favorite story about that is that a guy I know in the in town who's a dentist came up to me and told me, I read your book. And then he went on to tell me, I actually read it all the way through. I usually don't get past five or ten pages when I start a book. <laughs> so I, you know, so this is a guy who is obviously, you know, well beyond his college years, who hasn't, you know, taken a course in in ages, who knew I wrote a book, picked it up, and decided he enjoyed it, and enjoyed it well enough to finish it. So 
So for me, that's that's a kind of um, that's the success I was looking for to be able to to be able to reach out and and make what I do understandable, what we do understandable to people who have no clue. Because one of the things that you that one of the frustrations that you have, well, if you're in rhetoric or linguistics or anything, you tell people you're a rhetorician or you tell people you're a linguist. And it's not like telling people you're a historian or a biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kids come out of high school and they know what history and biology is. They have no clue what rhetoric and linguistics are. So, you know, so we suffer in, a, in, the, in, in academia as, as participating in a discipline that is completely opaque to the whole world. So if nothing else, this book is sort of an offering to the entire world to come and understand what we do, enjoy language, laugh a little bit, and, um, you know, and then, then I don't have to, you know, spend half of the cocktail party explaining it to you. <laughs> well, and also, and this goes back to, uh, you know, the, the genesis, the Stan's original idea for the book is the, the pedagogical power of humor. Yeah. Uh, as this vehicle for engaging people and teaching people. Um, and I think the book is um, sort of a testament to that. Um, I have people who are not academics who have come up and said, oh, I read your book and, and, and enjoyed it and I've, I've learned a lot. And again, that's, that's a fairly rewarding thing to hear mm-hmm. that, um, that we can speak to, to people beyond the, the expert or the specialist and uh, explain to them a little bit about what we do. Um, that, that's pretty important to me as someone who's a rhetoric, rhetorician who, um, you know, most people, when they hear the term rhetoric, they think something nefarious or, or, or dastardly is about to happen to them. <laughs> so, right. yeah. so this is a, a book a little bit, at least a little bit about some of my interest and, and kind of helps describe what it is I, I pursue it uh, as a scholar. Absolutely, yes. And I think it functions, as I said, very well in that, in that respect. Um, although the book is, you know, in many ways freestanding, I mean, I have to ask whether you uh, whether you're working on anything uh, anything related or uh, anything similar, or whether you think, you know, this this idea of explaining linguistics and unpacking it and, and rhetoric through humour um, is something you'd like to take further. You got something you're working on? Well, no, I mean, for me, this book has been as much it's been a, a learning process for me, and um, uh, particularly working on the books. I mean, working on the chapter on cross-cultural communication and on language variation um, helped me. It helped my own work in, in writing it. I'm doing work in stylistics, and I'm finding that um, my experience with humor um, is sort of similar to is playing, kind of repeating itself in my studies of style. That the people who can talk about these these kinds of issues with a great deal of precision and, and um, um, inside are linguists, uh, sociolinguists in this case. So uh, I've learned a lot and I've been able to carry it forward into uh, this, this new project on, on stylistics. Mm-hmm. In my case, uh, um, I mean, this has been a learning experience for me has been sort of a temptation to take it further, but not necessarily with humor. Um, I'm engaged with a, a, a colleague in Iowa on a project um, which involves um, writing a book called, called Language Conflict and Language Rights. And what we, what we haven't, we haven't by any means finished the book. We barely started it, but um, we have a you know, sort of a framework in mind and we know what we'll get, what's going to go in it. 
But here is a, a, an area where, again, language comes into contact with people and people have, you know, have opinions about and reactions to language. And this particular book project is, is, is really designed to deliver something to people who are political scientists, studies, uh, students of international relations and history, uh, students of language, of identity groups and culture. And, and, and part of, part of what, what I think that, that, that the book that we have now and the book that, I, and this other book that I'd like to, you know, I hope that we'll finish in another year or so is that we're trying to bring out what we know and make it accessible to an, a wider public. There's so much, there's so much bad information about language, which is, you know, which has such currency and is so hard to kill. And you can hardly kill it without coming off like a scold. And when you come off as a scold, then people don't want to hear you anymore. And so, you know, if there's a way to, you know, sort of light up the room a little bit and make knowledge of language, better knowledge of language instead of just you know, misapprehensions about language, then we've done something, then we've contributed something. And that's, that's what, uh, I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun to, to be able to or challenge yourself to reach out beyond your own discipline. I mean, people who are linguists, for me, people who are uh, in rhetoric, like for, for Chris, I mean, they, they get it. You know, the people in your own field get what you do. You don't have to tell them. It's right. the people outside who have no clue and who, and who carry around these incredible mis misapprehensions about things which are so hard to get to. And so, you know, maybe we've made a, you know, sort of chipped at the wall a little bit, I guess. Yeah. I think that's a very inspiring thought on which to finish. And, uh, and I think I agree very much that I think what you've, uh, what you've done is a, is a very substantial contribution in that regard. So for now, let me say... Sandy Winsky, Chris Holton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I've been talking to Stanley Dubinsky and Chris Holton about understanding language through humour. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.